In this tr tradition that we're teaching from, there is a text um, called the Satipatthana Sutta, which is a discourse from early Buddhism, which uh, you could say is, is one of the the central texts that we go back to again and again. And kind of one of the translations of Satipatthana Sutta is the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. So it's a text that, that kind of explains or describes uh, mindfulness. And uh, it's really interesting. In this text, there is there's a part of this uh, Four Foundations of Mindfulness that's tucked away that I, I find it seems to be uh, something that is kind of skipped over quite often. And I would like to take some time with it this evening just because I think it might reveal something about being mindful and hopefully reveal something about this retreat and and is impertinent to your life in some kind of manner. Also, I need to explain that this Satipatthana Sutta, another way of translating it, and this will, will come into to play as I describe this, is not the four foundations of mindfulness, but four ways of establishing mindfulness. So to keep that in mind as we get into this, um, this topic. And the way I'd like to kind of share with you this thing that's tucked away in the Satipat Satipatthana Sutta is in a very meandering way through poetry, because I th think the, the poetic sometimes uh, holds something that we can't get to directly. So to begin with a poem by Alice Walker, the, the novelist and poet, and the, the title of her poem is Lying Quietly. So she begins, Lying quietly, bones aching, I feel I must be falling through them. That standing upright was an idea, an interlude, an illusion. That we are always on our way to dust. Standing upright is just an interlude in this process that we're involved in. An illusion, an idea. And those words from Alice Walker give me this feeling of what Matthew was pointing to last night in so many different ways. The ascent and the descent, the peaks and the valleys. that this too is part of this activity of living, is this descent, descent towards our dying. You know, as William Carlos Williams says in, at the beginning of his, one, of his, one of his poems, he says, the descent beckons as the ascent beckoned. And maybe you felt this in your life. There's a there's a beckoning for the ascent of our life, of the the unfolding, the growing, the 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 the, the transformation that happens in our life. And yet, there's also the beckoning of the descent, 
that this is just part of what it is to be a human being, the human predicament of the demise of these bodies. And it's interesting, this, this is part of uh, what's talked about in the four ways of establishing mindfulness, which I find striking. This is not something I came across when I first came across mindfulness. Or if you look at modern definitions of mindfulness, there's nothing about you are going to die in the definition. <laughs> Have you noticed that? <laughs> and I'm not pointing that out to somehow say that this is better than a modern definition or less than. It's not about a critique. It's just I find it interesting to see sometimes what gets left out and what it might reveal about this practice that we're doing together. So establishing mindfulness through this understanding that we're going to die. In the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, this text, how it's pointed out is through a practice. It's to imagine that you're in a charnel ground, a charnel ground being where there's all these, these dead bodies in various uh, forms of decomposition. And then to reflect, and you can do this just in uh, one's imagination, to notice, as is said in the, the, this discourse, oh, this body here, this body too, <laughs> this body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. This is the way it is. This is the context within which we're practicing. And this is such a central aspect of not only early Buddhism, but most schools of Buddhism, uh, some kind of reflection on one's own death. And more broadly, how, how experience passes away. So a number of years ago now, I got married to my partner and one of the main themes in our wedding ceremony was um, uh, to take some time to reflect on when we were getting married, the, actually it was my mentor who married us, talking about the one fact we know is that this relationship will either end in estrangement or death. I know it's sounding romantic, isn't it? <laughs> what a great wedding. Woohoo! Yeah, let's reflect about this. Okay, it's a little weird. But there is something so galvanizing about that to have that, have that sense in relationship and to have it continue to inform our relationship. Because it's the one thing we know about a relationship. And it makes a difference. And I'll, I'll talk about how it makes a difference, this reflecting on death. And this reflection has been something that's really alive. It's not something that I've kind of done once and it's over. And I think this is why the Buddha recommended it as a daily reflection for both monastics and lay people. There's something that's come alive for me around this. And I've gone through all kinds of different emotions. And again, we'll, we'll get to this. this. This fact that we live with.
So how does it establish mindfulness? How does it play into what we're doing here? I think this is the question to really look at. You know, why is this tucked into a way of establishing mindfulness? And as I said, I, I feel like it puts things into a proper context for what we're doing here. For, for example, somebody asked, once asked the Dalai Lama, what surprised him most in the world? And he said, what surprises me most are human beings. Because they sacrifice their health in order to make money, and then they sacrifice money to recuperate their health, and then they are so anxious about the future that they don't enjoy the present. The result being, they don't live in the present or the future. They live, live as if they're never going to die, and then die having never really lived. painful thought, I find it, that possibility, living without never really having lived, and that anxiousness. So it establishes mindfulness because it reminds me of the context within, with which in I'm practicing. Oh, I'm going to die, and that has implications to it, implications about how I should be living my life, how I want to be engaging in living my life. You know, as uh, Matthew mentioned in his first talk, this, this path isn't just about plugging mindfulness into our lives as they are. The path is much broader than that. It's not some little band-aid. And hopefully you hear that with this. With a reflection on death, it broadens really what this is all about. For me, it's shaping my life, shaping my life so it, 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 it can be the expression of my spiritual path. And again, I want to be clear, like this reflection isn't, the aim is not to, to make a stop or collapse or be fearful. And I do have to say, sometimes when I've reflected on it, those were some of the emotions I needed to feel. But rather to give a, a broader view of what this is all about, to hold it differently, to allow it to land differently, hopefully, and essentially also to establish mindfulness in this particular way. And I want to point out that this can be a difficult reflection, a difficult thing to wholeheartedly take in. Why is that? I mean, there probably could be all kinds of reasons. But what I've noticed is that it can start to feel like tricky territory because it's, it's tapping into all of our own experiences around loss. It stirs that, 
that whole realm around loss. You know, whether it be losses around our health or ability or losses of other people in our lives. Or sometimes it's the loss of the thing that we never had that we felt like we really needed. Which can be really painful to come to terms with that. The loss of the thing I never had. And loss can get so intertwined with our experience. I'm sure you know the feeling of that. Of how intertwined it is to navigate that. The, the great poet W.S. Merwin, who died earlier this year, has a two-line poem that I find so powerful called Absence. Just two lines. He says, Your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched with its color. Your absence, your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched with its color. Loss can feel like that, can't it? Where it feels so pervasive. It makes it so complex, this reflection on death at times. And it's kind of part of it. And in, real, in, in many terms, it's, it's a central aspect of this path because this is a central aspect of the suffering that comes with being a human being. Is how do I come to terms with a world that's impermanent? Where there's an ascent and a descent? How do I live in such a world? So this establishes mindfulness in the way that I'm given a tool to help me navigate such a world, the world of impermanence, in a way that I can truly show up for this ephemeral, fragile life that we have. I also think that bringing in this fact of death, especially our own death, you know, helps clarify. It gives a context, as I was talking about. It can also clarify kind of the, the nature of the world that we're in. Again, another poem that I, I feel expresses this. That's what I love about poetry. It sometimes can catch the emotional flavor so well. And this is a, a poem by the uh, poet uh, Liesel Mueller entitled In Passing. She begins, How swiftly the strained honey of afternoon light flows into darkness. And the closed bud shrugs off its special mystery in order to break into blossom. As if what exists 
exists so that it can be lost and become precious. How swiftly the strained honey of afternoon light flows into darkness and the closed bud shrugs off its special mystery in order to break into blossom. As if what exists, exists so that it can be lost and become precious. When I truly take in this fact, the world becomes precious. This is why it's so powerful to have this as part of our wedding ceremony. It, it grounded that sense of preciousness of the time that we had together. It really helps with that. Maybe we did take it too far. The other thing we did after our honeymoon is to begin a reflection on death together. You know, one own and then the other partner. I don't mean this to be such a romantic uh, talk, but it just ended up being that way. <laughs> it was so interesting just to see th just the emotions it stirred and also the, the value it placed on certain things. And to see my own reactivity around it. Because I think I could really see how I was confusing, going back, referring back to my previous talk, the feeling of falling in love compared to being able to love. You know, the falling in love feeling that would get elicited is just, the, you know, I'd be traveling and still continuing to do this reflection on death when we weren't together, and then it could be a feeling of desperation, that I desperately needed to be with her. But that desperation, I really wasn't with her, I was just with my desperation. <laughs> It was the thing that was actually getting in the way. That was more falling in love. The being able to love was, was began, beginning to work through that. So it clarifies. Death clarifies and allows the world to become precious. And the wor when the world is precious, then it establishes wanting to be present. It galvanizes this intention, this impulse to be here for our experience. For all of our experience, experiences, the peaks, the valleys, the ascents, the descents. How could we miss a moment to live in such a precious world? begins me to make me wonder, how could they have left this out of the modern definition of mindfulness, right? <laughs> we should all write a letter to John Kabat-Zinn and have him change his definition a little bit. <laughs> and then another facet of this reflection on dying, and, and I just want to point out, it's, in some ways I'm just trying to, to turn the jewel to see just these different facets that sometimes overlap and sometimes don't. But crisscross in this theme. 
is a poem, again, another poem by Ellen Bass entitled, If You Knew. And she begins, What if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them, giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm, brush your fingertips along the lifeline's crease. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal, when the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I don't remember they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt They just had lunch, and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block, and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are? Soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time. How close does the dragon spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are? Soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time. Do you feel that? How that galvanizes the importance of being here for our experience. It galvanizes the importance of mindfulness. It establishes it. Especially in the context of other people. Sometimes when I reflect upon this, I can feel the embarrassment of how I can overlook people so easily. I get so caught up in the busyness of my life. Why? Maybe because I want to answer emails? (laughs) Sometimes it can feel so foolish. And yet remembering that, I I can feel that. It's like I don't have to even have to practice mindfulness. It comes on its own when that's really clear to me. When I know this, I don't have to work at mindfulness. It's already established. 
You might even feel that right now. So this aspect of establishing mindfulness that we find in the Satipatthana Sutta tucked away in there. This fact of our death, how it, how it, how it puts it in context. That quote from the Dalai Lama. It clarifies the importance of being here for our lives. So important. And yet there's a an additional reflection that I want to bring in the, in this context as well, which I think is equally important. And there's interesting critiques of why it's not been equally important in certain contexts. And that's not only that we're going to die, but also the reflection that you've been born. Such an important reflection. You do find it in... in early Buddhism and later Buddhism as well, is to reflect on one's precious human birth. And I think an important reflection, you know, in, there are many spiritual traditions that there's a strong emphasis on reflecting on death. And then in philosophy, especially Western philosophy, you, you find uh, such a centrality to uh, reflections on death in philosophical works. And so there's been some critiques on why has, especially like in other spiritual traditions and in philosophy, why has uh, the reflection on birth been left out? And I want to acknowledge this comes from an interesting book that came out maybe in the last five, ten years by Anne O'Byrne called uh, Natality and Finitude. Natality in this context means just the fact that we were born. And one of the the reflections on this is that natality, the fact that we've been born, has not been given as much reflection is because most of these reflections have been done and been given by men, not women. And so the fact of being born, the the experience around giving birth is forgotten. Bearing children is done by women. And so this possibility of it being ignored in that way. And yet, just as important to reflect on this fact that you've been born. You know, in the the Buddhist tradition you know, there is this. And I, I want to point out, just because there's a reflection of birth, on birth in early Buddhism, which I think is so cool, I'm not trying to contend that somehow Buddhism is free of patriarchy. That would be like a very silly idea. But I still think it's interesting that it's that, that you find it in early Buddhism. And the image that the, the Buddha gives to really emphasize the just the preciousness of our human birth is, um, he says, imagine that there is a blind sea turtle that's in the the great oceans and this blind sea turtle only comes up once every 100 years to catch a breath 
And somewhere out in all of the oceans, there's a small ring, maybe about so big, just a little bit bigger than the head of the sea turtle. And then he asks the monastics, what is more probable? The likelihood of the blind sea turtle coming up once every 100 years in the great oceans for its head to randomly, miraculously go through the ring or to have a precious human birth. Of course, the monastics are pretty good. They say, oh, precious human birth is more rare than that. And the Buddha says, just so, just so, this is correct. So this image to really show what a precious thing that we're involved in, that we've been born. You know, just in a, maybe a more modern view of it. When I think about the Earth, Earth's 4.5 billion year history. It's a massive history. And if we were to take the history of the Earth, 4.5 billion years, and map it up out onto one calendar year, it's really interesting to see how this looks. So if we were to map it up on one calendar year, it's on February 25th that life appears on Earth. And then it's not until early November, we get to early November, the first plants on land appear. And then it's not until December 13th or 14th that the first mammals appear. Can you guess when we appear, Homo sapiens? December 31st at 11.36 p.m. Wow, we've been here such a short while. Tender, fragile. What a precious thing to be born in this form. Again, this uh, just some reflections from Anna Byrne and this from this natality infinitude, and she's kind of basing it off. Uh, you know, Hannah Arendt was uh, was a philosopher, political theorist, was kind of one of the primary philosophers to start to talk about natality, the, the fact that we've been born. But she points out that that uh, reflecting on our birth reveals something different than our death. that ultimately everyone goes to their death alone, you could say, in some manner. Birth, however, elicits a certain fact that, that I am here because of others. I am right here because of the support of others. There's no way I could be here without the support of others. Birth implies that. Birth, birth happens in relationship. And the continual birthing of my life happens out of relations. And I come to see how relations define kind of our lives. And also it clarifies something in the sense of 
that it situates us as kind of historical beings in a particular way. That, that I come into the world at a particular time in a world that is not my own making. And yet, a demand to be responsive to this world that's not my own making. That both are true. Kind of thrown into this world. Just the way it is. And then, especially for a spiritual path, this demand, this obligation to respond to all these conditions that are not your own making and yet are intertwined with your birth. So being born, dying, this is the context within which we're practicing. You have these amazing conditions that have come together as a result of being born. You're here, being exposed to this practice. And yet soon you will die. So what I'd like to do as an ending is just to, what I'll be doing in a couple minutes, is just to take you through a reflection on our our precious human birth, and then a reflection on our death. And I want to be clear, the reason for this, some of it is just to, to not to continue with it. If you want to do some reflection after this as part of your, your, your retreat, that's fine. But more is just to kind of place these seeds and just allow them to germinate a little bit on the remaining part of the retreat, to, to influence what it is to be mindful, to influence you know, the importance of this time here on this retreat. And then it will, it will give whatever it needs to give in terms of this important aspect of establishing mindfulness. So in light of that, if you need to stand up and stretch or move around a little bit just so there can be a little bit more wakefulness, feel free to do that if you need to just make sure there's a quality of comfort before we just uh, go into this guided reflection. Yeah, so I invite you to find a, a, a comfortable position to sit in. Or to stand or lie down, whatever works for you. And then I invite you to allow your attention to come inward. Just allowing the attention to gently rest on maybe the feeling of the body sitting. To gently rest maybe with the breath. Just to gently arrive.
And then as I speak this, it's just an invitation. It's not really thinking about what I'm going to be speaking as you have your attention inward. It's just getting a feeling sense of what I'm sharing. Allowing it to wash over. There's nothing you need to do with it, but just to listen. You have been born a precious human birth. an opportunity to live a life rare indeed is human birth and to be exposed to a spiritual path even more rare just to notice what arises with this And being born reminds us you are here because of others. You wouldn't be here if it wasn't for others. You have gotten to this point in life as a result of being in relation with others. You have been born. You have been thrown into a world that is not your own making. And situated within a various with within various histories that were not your own choosing. Thrown into the history of your family of society. It is not your own making, but it is yours to navigate. Death the fact that we will die. Your death is certain, but the time of your death is uncertain. And then getting a feeling sense of this, ah, my death is certain. Every living being who came before me has died. I am not an exception to this. It is the inevitable consequence of being born. It is intertwined with birth.
And the time, the time of my death is uncertain. Every moment I move closer to death, like the sun during the day draws closer to sunset. Where I die is uncertain. At home, in a hospital, in a car, maybe alone, or maybe together. How I die is uncertain. It may be long and drawn out, or maybe suddenly. It might be a painful death or an easeful death. Maybe through an accident or cancer or a stroke or a heart attack. Knowing that my death is certain and the time of my death uncertain, how do I touch this moment right now? Knowing that my death is certain and the time of my death uncertain, how do I make the most of the remainder of this retreat? So may these reflections on our birth and our death, may they, may they lead to the, the opening of our hearts in a way that leads to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. So now what we'll have is a, a walking meditation and then we'll come back for... 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.